Jingi walla blagami arako dogum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bogube blagame. Thank you, Delta K, a Rakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Tony Birch talks with Chris Flynn about his novel Mammoth, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Welcome everyone to the um, Byron Bay um, Festival for 2020. Uh, my name's Tony Birch and um, tonight I'm talking to Chris Flynn about his um, remarkable new novel, um, Mammoth. Um, these are particular circumstances this year. As people would know, what we would normally be doing at this time of year is, is gathering at Byron Bay on the um, north coast of New South Wales, um, where we'll, we'd be enjoying the seaside and perhaps buying a caftan or two. Um, but in fact, um, because of the COVID virus, we're doing this remotely, so we're not in Byron. Um, Tony Birch, myself, I'm in downtown Carlton and in Melbourne, the, the literary heart of Australia. And um, my guest tonight, Chris Flynn, is actually on Phillip Island, um, which is um, a separate colony um, on the um, west coast of Victoria. So um, please welcome Chris very much. Um, Chris's new book, as I've just mentioned, is Mammoth. Um, it's Chris's third novel. Um, Chris has a really strong background as both an author, um, certainly a reviewer and critic, and Chris has been a, a real champion of, of other writers, particularly young writers, and I think he's one of the more important people in the sort of literary world in Australia who is both innovative, generous with other writers, and I think uh, a remarkable writer um, himself. Um, now, as well as myself being in isolation, Chris Flynn, um, since the publication of Mammoth, and of course Chris normally would have been doing many um, literary events um, after the release of the novel, but he's been locked down um, like the rest of us, and um, he lives next to a, a penguin sanctuary on Phillip Island, but also, um, Chris, I heard that you've been doing a lot of baking on the island down there. What's what's going on there? Well, I have nothing else to do, really, except... Um avoid working on another book and um, experiment in the kitchen. So I've always been a fond baker. So it hasn't just magically appeared in my repertoire under COVID. Um, I've always been a, a big baker of cookies and cheesecakes and other sorts of cakes. So I've been experimenting a bit further. I've been making a Donahay Snickers bar lately, which is made from, uh, from uh, dates and it's sugar-free mm-hmm. and it's pretty delicious. So um, I'll bring you some next time I come up. Has that become your your signature dish or dish, or what would you say is your your if you wanted to impress me with your baking, what what would you bring up to Carlton? Um, I also do uh, um, medjool dates, on which I I pluck the stones out of the dates with a pair of tweezers, so as not to cut the dates open. Then I fill them up with peanut butter or almond butter or or whatever you like, and then I coat them in dark chocolate and put some salt on them, some sea salt on them. I put them in the fridge for 20 minutes 
and they're delicious little snacks. So I'll maybe bring you some of those next time. Oh, that that just sounds delicious. I, I love that. I mean, I don't know how a lad from from Northern Ireland um, gets to be such a great baker, but I actually mm. want to start there so that. Um, one of the things that I read about you in the commentary was that it says that you, when you were a young kid and apparently eating your porridge at the um, kitchen table at home, you were a, a young child who had a very adventurous sense of spirit and that you were much more interested in, in travel, time travel to both the past and the future rather than living in the present. Can you talk a little bit about that in, in a sort of sense of a serious way? Because I think it, it, it does tell us something about your writing why do you have this passion of moving about in time as a writer? That is a good question. Um, the porridge, inc- incidentally, that I would have eaten as a child would have been traditional porridge. Uh, you have salt in it. You don't have it um, sweet with honey and um, and milk like the spoiled Australians have it. Um, it's it's salt. It's bitter. It's a, it's a hard meal to start the day because that's the kind of existence that you're supposed to have. Um, yeah, that, that, that's why you're an angry people, isn't it? <laughs> that's, I mean, all, all joking aside, it, it kind of was a bit like that. Um, and maybe that's why I was always interested in escaping in my mind to other places as a kid growing up in Belfast. I was born in 72, um, at the height of the Troubles. So I never really knew anything else other than that growing up, this idea of there being an occupying armed force on the streets, heavily armored um, vehicles moving around. People, I've had so many guns pointed at me um, before I before I turned 18. I can't even, I, could, I couldn't even count the number of times it happened that the police or the army drew down on me and uh, threatened to shoot me. Um, so I guess living in that kind of, in that atmosphere of feeling the, the jackboot of authority on your neck all the time, it makes you want to escape into completely different worlds so I was very fond of science fiction as a boy Um, not just science fiction movies and tv shows but also just gadgets and um, and um, books about how the future was going to be Um, I remember getting a hardback kids book out of the library when I was a small and it basically listed all of the things that we could expect to see by the year 2020 and I was so excited um, to know that by the time I was in my late forties, I, I was going to be zooming around some futuristic city on a on a monorail um, or in a flying car with a uh, a a phone on my wrist that I'd be able to make voice calls to or video calls to people, and that we would have already have explored um, several of the planets you know in the solar system, but. Unfortunately, none of that really happened. The only thing that happened was the phones, <laughs> um, which we seem to have plunged all of our human endeavor into this one thing, which is making the little square box that we take phone calls on ever better and better. Um, but I think maybe it was just related to the fact that I I lived in you know pretty much poverty conditions. My mom and dad are illiterate, and we really had nothing at all growing up, and... Um, but I would, would escape that world in flights of imagination. It's interesting you say that. I was really struck by that because my parents are similarly, um, well, not completely illiterate, but certainly in your case, I read that you had um, three books in the house and one was the a copy of The Exorcist, the Peter Blake, Blakely novel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we lived in a house without a bookcase or books and clearly I think there must have been such a passion and hunger in you to, to both escape but also to 
to access literature and you talk really with great admiration of a librarian and, and the public library and it's something that I've always been passionate about because it's where I learned, of course, to enjoy reading and enjoying reading is the beginning of any um, journey to become a writer. So um, thinking back to that time, how important was it for you to be able to access um, books and to learn about literature when, of course, there was no opportunity to do that at home. That's a good point because it only really occurred to me recently when I was talking about that, that if there hadn't been a library in in my town, I probably wouldn't be here. I probably wouldn't be here in Australia. I wouldn't be a writer. There's so many things wouldn't have happened in my life. Um, I probably would have been either dead or in prison or working in a, a grim factory somewhere in Northern Ireland, which I actually did for a while, but um, uh, but I'd probably still be there and, uh, you know, have 12 kids and be, you know, look at least 50 years older than what I currently do. Um, yeah. But the library really saved me as a child. Um, I've, I'll always have a fond a fondness for libraries because when I discovered that there was a library where that had loads of books and not just three books, um, I went straight in there and the librarians took me under their wing very, very quickly. They could see that I was interested in books and, and reading and would recommend, you know, kids books for me, then young adult books and quickly graduated me into the adult section of the library where I was always begging them to go in there. And I don't know what age I was when I finally was allowed in there, maybe 10 or something. And then they would introduce me to adult works of literature, but also to, you know, fun books um, adventure novels um, and history books and it wasn't until Mammoth came out that I realized that's probably was its origin was um, the kind of books that I was reading as a child um, it's funny how these things work their way through your system sometimes it takes decades um, for the stories to work its way through your body and, and end up on the page and you said you didn't have much of a a reading upbringing either and yet here you are um retiring today as a as a university professor and um you have a book on the miles franklin shortlist that's not too bad well, he didn't go up reading books it's not too bad but what i was thinking of that you said you may have had been working in a factory with, with 12 kids but the other thing that we possibly missed out on, if neither of us had read books, we we could be robbing banks now, Chris. We could be sort of a gang, you know. We could have been making money by other means. <laughs> Almost um, certainly. Yes. Look, I want to. I do want to now turn to the the novel. So, um, your new book, your third novel, is titled Mammoth. Um, it's a book that has been released to real acclaim. Um, I've I've read a lot about the book, and um, people have really raved about the book. Um, one of the comments, and there are many, but talking about it as being exceptional in vision and execution, I'll talk about that later on, particularly, the, I think, the courage of the execution of this book. Um, it's been described as adventurous and audacious. I think the best thing to do to start, though, is for you to give um, listeners a, a summary of the novel. So the novel is set the night before a natural history auction that took place in 2007 in New York. It was a real auction. Um, most of the exhibits that were going under the hammer were um, dinosaur bones, megafauna bones, shark's teeth. They had the severed hand of an Egyptian mummy. And um, basically the novel is set the night before and it's all of these exhibits talking to each other and they tell each other 
how they died, um, when they died, who dug them up, why they were dug up, and what's been happening to them since then. So in telling the stories, led primarily by the main narrator, the mammoth, they are able to go back through time to the end of the Ice Age and sometimes a little bit further back and um, the early 19th century. So 1800 till about 1804 is covered in depth in the novel because that's primarily whenever the mammoth was dug up and he went on a bit of a, a journey. His bones were dragged around the world um, for various reasons. Um, so it jumps between the present day and, um, and those periods past. Okay, one of the um, again, one of the really you know, great reviews of many of the book um, claims, and I think I agree with this entirely, is that the book will change how readers understand the world. Um, could you tell us what world were you entering um, or reimagining through the lives and thoughts of, of extinct animals? So, in other words, you've used the voices of you know otherwise what we might call fossilized bones to really interrogate, I think, contemporary society in many ways. So. What drew you to that approach to the work? It's very innovative and I think it would be something I'd be terrified to even consider as a writer. Um, how did you come about that notion of using that approach? Yeah, I, it was something I was very wary of. Um, once I realised that I was going to tell the story from the point of view of the various bones that were on sale who had popped up at different periods throughout history, um, I knew then it was going to be a, an historical tale but right from the beginning, I wanted to do to, to, to look at a period of human history, essentially the last 10 to 12,000 years, um, where this is modern man, really. You know, the, our, our ancestors, you know, around about that time in North America and Europe um, started to get a little bit more advanced. They would uh, use tools, start building their own habitations and um, slaughtering all the animals. They were a bit more advanced than the Neanderthals. And um, so I wanted to look at that period, that large period of human history, um, but from the point of view of um, observers um, who weren't us. And mm -hmm. um, in order to do, and in doing so, I thought I would be able to have a bit more of a dispassionate view on the mistakes that we have made as a species in the last 10, 12,000 years. And especially yeah. in, in more modern times. It's interesting because I think that one of the, I mean, the one, a telling moment in the novel, if I could just um, quote, is um, when the Neanderthal arrived on the steppe, they lived alongside us in relative harmony. And I, I find that such a vital moment in the novel. And for me, it's like one of those um, triggers for thought because I think what the novel is doing and, and, and taking that, that comment as a sort of lead is that it's really seems to me uh, the, the Neanderthal, the so-called primitive, was able to live in relative harmony with other animal species. But it's almost as if from then on, you, it's indicating and predicting a failure of so-called advanced human society because I think what we witness, I think, as a species and I think what the book is, is doing in a very sophisticated way is that it's also talking about or, or discussing the arrogance and hubris of advanced human society, which is hell-bent on um, failure without knowing so. Yes, and the destruction of the very environment in which we live. And 
I think it was interesting to look at the origin of a lot of modern contemporary problems, um, climate change, extinction, appropriation. Um, these are all things that we began to do um, as soon as we were able to rub two stones together and create fire and, um, and not weren't dragging our knuckles on the ground anymore. Um, but um, in when that moment came, when we, when we supposedly became more advanced and more and, and clever, we instantly sowed the seeds for our own destruction. And um, the um, early, early peoples at that time, once they, particularly in North America and Europe, um, began, began an adversarial relationship with the natural world where they tried to exert their dominion over it and um, elevate themselves as the, as the alpha species and that all other creatures in, in the world um, were somehow beneath them. And it's something that we've never really been able to shake. Um, and since then, we've only expanded that uh, nefarious agenda to exert dominion not only over the animal kingdom and the natural world, but also over each other. We've just gotten worse and worse and worse as time goes on. And I thought it was about time we had a bit of a, a reassessment of who we used to be. Um, and that will perhaps help us understand a little bit about who we are now and who we want to be. Yeah, I think that um, a really important comment that you made here yourself in regard to the uh, to the expectations for the novel were you wrote or have said, we consider ourselves lords over nature, but it never works out for us in the long run. And then you follow that up with, I don't know if we're capable of learning the lesson. One of the things that seems to me clear there is that we're not the most intelligent of species. That So, you know, with the voices that we're hearing in this novel are other animal species, and we're one of those animals, but we're the the least intelligent or that our intelligence gets the better of us, if that could be, um, it sounds a bit like an oxymoron, but our so-called superior intelligence is also um, a bit of a sort of noose around our neck at times. Yeah, our intelligence is also, is is our greatest strength, but it's also our biggest flaw in that, um, and you can see that with re regards to the scientific community, for example, who are, you know, who will often press ahead with um, doing something because they can, not necessarily because they should. And I think the idea of morals, ethics, civic duty, these are these are things that have been that used to be taught, you know, um, but now those values have been really eroded and. I'm not sure who we really know, if we really know who we are anymore or what our responsibilities are. And a lot of the conversations that we're having in public now about um, climate change and Black Lives Matter and extinction of species and all the issues that face the world, it's kind of us finally coming to terms with the fact that we're not good people. We we are essentially, it's, it's in our nature to be destructive and to do the wrong thing. And we're in this moment of correction at the moment where we're realizing it and trying to trying to fix things, but we don't really know how to because we're so deep in it that um, it's very hard for us to take a step back and analyze our own behavior and, and try to change. And as you know, um, humans, if nothing else, are creatures of habit. And once those habits have been put in place, often when you're very young, 
it's very very difficult to to knock them out of you and to change and but the earth is undergoing a huge period of change and we are responsible for it and it almost feels like the only part of the world that's not changing right now is us and a lot of us are trying i guess but are we succeeding it remains to be seen it's that's really important i think considering the moment of which the novel has come out and it's yeah the novel is hamstrung i'm talking about commercially by this isolation that we're suffering but i feel that the covid crisis it's almost like this is a test for us this could make a this is helping us to understand how we might function cooperatively or, or how, we, how we may not be able to function. And I think it's indicative of the responses of different governments around the world. It's quite telling where the most dictatorial, arrogant sort of world superpowers, um, that again, that sense of you know, um, hubris, it's in countries such as the US in particular in Britain and, and you know, South American superpowers supposedly like Brazil, who are suffering greatly at the moment because they have very little ability or certainly at a level of so-called leadership to understand the need for for cooperation. And it seems that your novel is in a way, not directly, but predicting the failure of human society if we don't understand our place within the world rather than the world serving our interest. Um, it just seems so so telling particularly whenever you look at the history of, um, of patriarchal um, strength and an image, which is one of the things that the novel's all about, this idea of um, men in power appropriating mm. um, symbols of strength from the animal kingdom in order to, um, to self-aggrandize. And self-aggrandizement is, of course, um, uh, something that we're, we're very familiar with, with all of these um, various... Uh, dictatorial world leaders who are supposedly heading up democracies. Um, but that has its roots um, in things that we've done thousands of years ago and also more recently. And one of the things that made me want to write the book was, was the fact that I had read some of Thomas Jefferson's correspondence, um, mm. which he was an early Republican president. And just after the election, um, when he really should have been concentrating on policy um he was out looking for mammoth bones or sending people out to the wilderness to look for mammoth bones because he wanted to collect them in the white house and he would spend evenings poring over them trying to reassemble them because he wanted to have this huge skull on his wall to show what a strong powerful nation america was and it's kind of the origin of that very trumpian notion of uh, making america great um, they've been doing it for hundreds of years, the Republicans. But you look throughout history and you see again and again men in power um, um, pretending to be strong men. And you've seen it with Vladimir Putin. Um, we probably shouldn't say this in case he's listening to the podcast and uh, the KGB turn up. I'm but, sure he is. Um, but you've, all those, those funny, hilarious images of him uh, shirtless on horseback when, you know, what is the point of that? That's basically just to show how manly he is, but it's a very old fashioned notion, but one that still, um, still is very um, resonant with obviously a lot of people because um, citizens all over the world are voting for these men um, who are making those same mistakes that we've made um, time and time again. I mean, that level of um, stupidity and arrogance, I think is, um, is, is there's a, the story that 
I think as part of the um, the the idea for you to write this novel was that um, if you could just tell us a little bit about the bidding war between of um, two of Hollywood's most um, known actors, great known actors who who went to war, a bidding war over a, a fossil. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because that seems to me it, it, it exemplifies the, the levels of stupidity and arrogance that you're talking about. Right, and it's not just limited to the world of politics. That's the thing. Um, in this 2007 natural history auction that um, where, the, where the book is set, one of the exhibits was the skull of a Tyrannosaurus batar, which is basically a Tyrannosaurus rex. This is the Mongolian cousin to it. And... Um, that was a very hot property at the auction and um, bids were coming in from some mystery buyers who turned out to be actors Nicolas Cage and Leonardo DiCaprio who were trying to outbid each other for the Tyrannosaur skull and Nicolas Cage ended up winning it for $276,000 and he put it up on on his wall in one of his houses one of his 12 houses um, and yeah, exactly. And um, just left it there because he just wanted, I suppose, visitors to his place just come and say, oh, wow, you're you're a big tough guy. Did you shoot that yourself? Um, mm. Whereas DiCaprio had to settle for the skull of a mosasaur, which is a big uh, aquatic, um, terrifying aquatic lizard. Um, but I thought it was funny that they were fighting over this skull to, for what reason? To show what big men they were. Um, mm. And um, that's exactly what's been going on in the world of politics and human endeavor generally for hundreds of years. Um, and it's so embedded in our society, this idea of like men in positions of power needing to tell everyone that they're powerful. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't fully understand it myself, but it's it's obviously a, a terrible ongoing flaw in um in mankind's uh, mission on this earth. Thank you. Um, another comment by a reviewer that, that really struck me was that um, the comment is, with our planet on the brink of calamitous climate change, mammoth scrutinizes humanity's role in the destruction of the, the natural world. I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. Yeah, they, this, these are big ticket issues. These are the big questions. Why did you decide, or we are the approaches to use humour in a very sophisticated um, way, by by the by all means? But yeah, it's a very serious subject. So the tone of the novel interests me as well because um, a lot of people have commented on on the on the the use of humour. Um, why not be be urbane and serious? I well, I I struggle with being <laughs> dead, deadly serious in my writing and in my life. Um, I have a bit of a tendency, maybe it's an Irish thing, but to not take anything too seriously. Um, I guess because I grew up in that, you know, time in Ireland where um, if you were, everything around you was serious. No one had any money. Everyone was poor. Um, there was no opportunity. Nothing was ever going to happen to you. And so um, you have to laugh because what else is there to get you through, get you through your life? Um, yeah. And so with the book, I was a bit concerned writing about climate change because it's such a hugely important topic for us as a species to confront. And a lot of the narrative around it is very grim, very depressing. And I had noticed people were switching off and yeah. just, just saying, oh, I can't be bothered with this anymore. I, I don't want to hear anything more about it. And that's a disaster whenever people don't want to hear about it. Um, and I think we have a bit of a, 
a problem where we tend to proselytize about issues like climate change and other you know big social issues and it doesn't do us any favors i don't think you're i mean if you're preaching to the converted then what's the point you need to be able to draw people into the debate who maybe are a bit nervous about it or um don't fully agree with your position and i think humor is a nice way to be able to draw people in unwittingly and make them think about the issue of climate change even if they don't necessarily believe it and certainly uh, i've had a lot of um, sales unusually perhaps from uh, in regional areas and i've had people contact me saying that they had um, that they didn't really believe in climate change but that they enjoyed the book and it was making them think about it a little bit differently so that's a victory as far as i'm concerned um if you can get one person um, who's a denier to think about it a little bit differently because you made them laugh then why not go down that route and um i just think it'd be nice i just thought it'd be nice to write a, a novel um dealing with these issues these fundamental issues but in a more of a, a light-hearted and accessible way mm. um okay i've look i've got a couple of questions um that we'll close on um one is again it it, it was um prompted by a review talking about the book also offering hope. Um, you've talked about very serious issues, not only climate change and, and you know, the destruction of the natural world, but you did, um, I think, rightly allude to issues like Black Lives Matter and other pressing issues. Where does hope lie for you as a writer in the sense of, you know, we don't want to be defeatist and I think with our writing, we clearly want to engage people and energise people. So, where does hope lie for us as writers to convey, um, well, not to convey messages, but to engage with our readers? I think one of the interesting things that's been happening lately is that under COVID, um, we have fallen into a little bit of um, sort of pseudo authoritarianism, sometimes out of necessity mm. and sometimes um, just sort of accidentally. And I noticed an article in the newspaper last week and it listed the top 10 essential jobs and the top 10 non-essential jobs. And um, I thought it was fascinating that we are being now, um, everyone's profession is now getting a rating as to how, how needed you are in society, which is a bit of a dangerous thing, right? And the number one non-essential job was artist. Okay. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, but it's because it, artists are seen to be people who, you know, lays around, don't do anything. They're mouthpieces. They um, they are they're not helping society. But it's staggeringly naive to believe that an artist is non-essential, and mm. and yet another terrible mistake to build a society where art and artists are not valued. And Australia is very good at doing that. <laughs> um, but it's a mistake because if Artists aren't there to um, interpret and parse and present um, contemporary problems by looking at the past, by looking at the future, by offering um, different alternatives, um, by by being humorous, by being um, by being serious, by uh, being empathetic or creative. Then how can we expect to ever move forward as a species um, if we? Didn't, and that's why there's humor all through the book, humor from these creatures, um, humor from the humans in the book, because that's how we live. And if we don't 
um, if we don't look at things through uh, an artistic prism sometimes, we can't actually see the truth. Art is a great way for, um, and creativity are amazing ways to look at the truth in, in our lives. And so I am hopeful as an artist. I'm an optimist as an artist. I like to think yeah. that, I, I, I like to think that creativity and imagination will ultimately triumph. Yeah, look, I'll ask the last question, but just, well, not an aside, just a brief response. I think one of the um, points I'd make there, I think when you hear or see those sort of lists or comments that artists don't matter, I actually see it strangely as a real energising force because when someone tells me my work doesn't matter, it's a, it's a time to do some really, to do work. So I think that um, it's a good, it's a good um, incentive for us to respond to that provocation by by ensuring that our work matters. So I just want to make that comment. I think it, it does energise us. But look, I've got a final question, and I was actually really touched by this, and I, I knew this because we know each other quite well. Um, you made a comment um, that um, w- which was about your life when you worked at uh, an RSPCA shelter, and you said, I became very aware of the internal life of animals and the way they communicate with each other and us. So... Not necessarily, but including what you took to this book, what has working with animals taught you about the world? What observing and being and caring around animals, how has it philosophically and intellectually informed your view of the world? I worked at the RSPCA for five years, um, part-time whilst I was writing this book. And um, I have to say it changed me completely as a person. Um, I, and as, also as an artist and, and as a creative, I had pretty much um, given up on writing um, prior to this book. Um, I know you enjoyed my first two books, but not many people read them and um, they got good reviews and everything, but it didn't seem to make much of a difference. They didn't um, resonate, I don't think, with too many readers. Um, and so I was all ready to just walk away from the writing world. Um, but then the RSPCA kind of saved me, and that's what animals do to you, you know, especially in animal charities. People always would come in and say, um, I'm here to rescue an animal. And half the time you knew that they were the ones who were going to be rescued um, mm. and not the animal. Mm. And they would, might have seen an animal on the website, a dog or a cat, and said, oh, I, want, I want to look at this dog or this cat. And you'd say, yeah, okay, but the animal will choose you. And so... They, mm they'd meet the dog or cat and they wouldn't click. And then some other animal was combining up to them and basically adopt them. The thing about working mm. with animals in such a close, in such close proximity is that it was, it was the most emotional job I'd ever had. I never worked at a place where so many of us cried so often, almost every day mm. you see mm. your colleagues crying, weeping, and sometimes there'd be disastrously bad things would happen in there. Um, and, we would all in unison you know, burst into tears because we'd all be so upset by what was happening. Mm. But it was also a joyful place. People think of um, an animal shelter as being oh, constant bad news or oh, what happens when the animals have to be put down or when they're sick or what. But those cases um, are in the minority. The majority of cases um, have happy endings for the animals. And um, there was something really special about um, seeing the relationship between people and animals and it being a healing relationship um, where of, for mutual benefit. And the animals would understand that and the humans would often understand it. 
So it was a, a very strange um, place to work because um, emotions were always high, always just bubbling underneath the surface, ready to, you were always ready to break down at any given moment. Um, but it was so rewarding in a, in a sense that's hard to express because you have a, a real, you really look at animals differently when you're working with them every day. I'm sure a lot of people who work in shelters or in zoos would probably say similar things um, or park rangers. Um, they really change you as a person. They make you much more aware of the fact that you are an animal. They bring you down. They, mm. I was going to say they bring you down to their level, but it's more they, they elevate you to their level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and they have a way of looking at the world that um, makes you yearn to be able to see it through their eyes. And mm. when you work in there, you try to get as close to the animal experience as possible um, because mm. you can sense that they live in the world in, in a much more connected and harmonious way than we do. It's actually a very calming um, profession to be in. Thank you, Chris. That's a lovely response. And um, I think it epitomizes the really incredible humanity you, you take to all your work and also I think importantly the relationships you you have with other writers and for people who don't know Chris Flynn outside his own work he's been incredibly generous to um, other writers including myself and um, I'm very lucky to have a friendship with him but also more lucky to have read his work so Chris thank you very much on behalf of the Byron Bay Writers Festival and um I'm sure we'll be back up there in person in future and we can, we can get the board shorts on and, and stroll down the beach and show off our two packs. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much. And congratulations on the Miles Franklin and, um, and finally hitting retirement. What are you going to do with yourself for the next 40 years? I'm going to get a tattoo across my chest that says I was shortlisted twice for the Miles Franklin Prize. <laughs> See you, mate. See you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.